WTBN Pinellas Park, 100.3 W262CP Bayonet Point. Online at Let's Talk Faith. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. The question I ask you this morning is how exactly does he do that? How does Jesus bring people to faith in himself? That's a very important question because Jesus said, I will build my church. How does he do that? That's rather significant. I've read various surveys asking people about what hinders them in sharing about Jesus. By far, the largest percentage respond that fear is their biggest obstacle. How will that person respond? Will I fail to convince them? Will they feel insulted? Will I lose their friendship? Witnessing can be a terrifying prospect. It's all too easy to forget that the job of a witness is merely to testify. It's the lawyer's job to persuade. God calls us to simply share what he did for us. And Jesus says, I will build my church. I'm glad you're listening today because I think Pastor Steve Kreloff has some extra special stuff for us as we move through this study of the nature of the church. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Our main text is Matthew chapter 16, but we'll begin today in Romans chapter 11, which deals with the relationship between Israel and the church. Beginning in verse 25, Paul said, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, and here Paul quotes from Isaiah, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What a great promise. Now, folks, don't misunderstand. Paul is not saying that all Jewish people forever will be saved just because they're Jewish people. What he is saying is all Jewish people, the entire nation alive at the time, at the end of the great tribulation period, shortly before Jesus returns to earth, all those Jewish people who are alive will be converted. The majority of the nation will be saved. God will open their eyes, work in their hearts. And then he goes on to say, just as it is written, this is what's written in the Old Testament. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob's just another word for Israel. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Talking about conversion. That's the new covenant. This is precisely what Zechariah predicted would take place. In Zechariah 12.10, he said, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. The blindness at that point will be taken away, and Israel will gasp when they realize that they crucified their own Messiah, and they will mourn in repentance, and they will believe. You see, those who mistakenly believe that God is through with Israel and has replaced her with the church have failed to understand an important, critical truth, a truth of God's amazing mercy, and wisdom, that for the last 2,000 years, God has been using the very sin of Israel's rejection to reach Gentiles with the gospel and to build his church. But once he completes this task of building his church, there will be Jewish people 
who will be provoked by jealousy when they see Gentile believers and they'll say, I want what you've got. And the Lord will take that blindness off and all Israel will be saved and come to faith in their Messiah, which is precisely what Paul meant when he said all Israel will be saved. Folks, look at Romans 11 again. Look at how Paul ends this chapter explaining, as he has explained God's mercy to Gentiles, and he's explained God's mercy to the Jewish people. God will fulfill all of his promises to Israel. God has full integrity. He's been merciful to Gentiles using the unbelief of Israel. He'll be merciful to Israel using Gentile witnessing and keep his word. Who could ever come up with a plan like this? But God. That's why Paul says in verse 33, oh, the depth of of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? That is, whoever sat down with God and said, now here's the plan. Nobody could even think of this. Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him? Who, who is it that God owes? Nobody, it's pure mercy. For from him and through him, And to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Who could come up with a plan like this but God? So I think it's very important for us in considering the nature of the church that we are absolutely clear in making the biblical distinction between Israel and the church. They are not the same, and Israel has not been replaced by the church. Now that brings us this morning to our study of Matthew 16, verse 18. All that was just introduction. Because it is here, as we noted before, that Jesus promised for the very first time that he would build something unique, a new community of followers called his church. Now, why did Jesus bring this up at this point? Very simply, because the time for his ministry on earth was winding down. He knows it's only half a year away before he's arrested, then crucified. He'll have to then um, return to the Father after he's resurrected, and he needs to concentrate on discipling his men who will be left on earth. He said that in John 17. He goes to the Father. He leaves his own on earth, and so he knows that he has to train them. He knows that they have to get ready, and so starting in verse 13 of Matthew 16, we see that he takes them to a place in the north area called Caesarea Philippi. And in that area, he asked them this question. He said, who do you think that I am? What's your conclusion? You've been with me for nearly three years. Who do you think I am? He asked that to all the disciples, but only one answered. Out of the 12 disciples who were asked this question, it's Peter alone who speaks up. And Peter gives what has now become known as the greatest and most certainly most famous confession of faith in Jesus. He says in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's who we believe you are. That's who I believe you are. To which Jesus responds by telling Peter, no one, no human being convinced him of this great truth. God is the one who has uniquely blessed Peter by revealing this truth to his heart. And then our Lord proceeds to tell Peter and the rest of the disciples listening to him about something he's going to do in the future. In light of his coming death, resurrection, ascension, return to to glory, he wants them to know that he's going to bring into existence something brand new called his church. This church will be not only a community of believers, but what, will they, what they essentially will believe is what Peter just confessed, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And what's more, he said, Peter, I want you to know you're going to play an important role in 
the building and establishing of this church. And folks, it's in the process of telling Peter what his part will be in the building of his church that Jesus reveals several important basic truths about the nature of the church that he will build. These truths about the church, I can't impress upon you how important they are for us to understand because we need to get our theology and understanding about the church and how it should function from the scriptures, specifically this passage, which later is amplified and clarified by other scriptures, but this is the initial teaching. Why is that so important? Because many Christians, many Christian leaders, get their their views of the church and how it should function from modern day trends or contemporary fads. They read magazines about some guy somewhere who's building a large church with large numbers by doing this program, and they go, that's what I'm going to do. And so they start a new program, and then they find now that's not working. Someone's building a bigger church with more. So they go to that. That's what we're not supposed to do. If you want to know what the church is about, both the universal church, which is made up of all believers who have ever trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, and various local churches, which are individual gatherings, of believers in various places around the world, like Lakeside, then we need to have a grasp of these essential truths about the church. Now, last week, we examined the first of these key truths that Jesus revealed about the nature of the church. And I'll just briefly say the church, he said, is built upon a solid rock. It has a solid foundation. Verse 18, I say to you that you're Peter, and upon this rock, I'll build my church. After hearing Peter speak of Christ and say who he is, Jesus looked at him and said, Simon, because that was his given name, I'm going to tell you who you are. You're Peter. You're the rock. You're the man who I am going to mold into being solid, firm, and strong like a rock. And because Peter will eventually live up to the meaning of his name and will act like a rock, being bold and courageous as a gospel witness, Jesus informs him that he's the one he's going to use to build his church upon him. Now, this has absolutely nothing to do with Peter being made the first pope, as the Roman Catholic Church believes, nor does it mean that he was even given a superior ranking above other apostles. He simply called himself a fellow elder. It just means that God in his sovereign plan chose Peter from among all the apostles to be the leading figure in the early days of establishing his church. How? by preaching the word of God. You see, the solid rock upon which the church is built isn't simply Peter as an individual. It's Peter as a gospel witness. It's Peter as he boldly proclaimed the word of God. It is the courageous preaching of the gospel by Peter that the Lord used initially to build his church. Now, you can't separate Peter from his teaching. And that's why I say it's not one or the other. It's both. And that's, that's verified by the book of Acts. You, you read the first few chapters of the book of Acts and you will see that Peter is used by the Lord as he boldly proclaims the gospel to, to be used by him to bring many into the church. You don't need to turn there, but in Acts chapter 2 verse 41, after he preached on the day of Pentecost, it said that, that 3,000 souls were added that day. Added to what? The church. And then a little bit later in chapter 3 and then on into chapter 4, we see 5,000 more were added. I mean, that's, that's 8,000 people in just a matter of days. You can see from these just few statements, and you can look it up on your own, that Jesus did exactly what he said he would do in Matthew 16 with Peter. He built 
his church. He began to, to build his church upon Peter and his teaching of the word of God. Folks, that's why the church has a solid foundation. That's why it has a solid foundation that will never be moved and never be shaken. If we start getting physical persecution in our country, understand that our numbers may dwindle, but the church will still exist. The church will still exist. And I say numbers will dwindle because persecution has a great way of purifying the church. Great way of purifying the church who people who are not serious about the Lord, if they know it might cost them their life to be identified with God's people, they're suddenly not here on Sunday mornings. So understand, it's not, the church doesn't have a solid foundation because Peter was such a solid guy. Because even the best of men are unreliable and shaky. But Christ doesn't build his church on any man. He builds it upon what Peter and his fellow apostles preached and then recorded for us in the New Testament, the infallible, inerrant truth about himself. So the firm foundation of the church of true believers is the word of God about Jesus Christ, as preached initially by Peter, as well as the other apostles. The Lord builds his church as men and women come to him for salvation in response to the truths of his word. The question I ask you this morning is how exactly does he do that? How does Jesus bring people to faith in himself? That's a very important question because Jesus said, I will build my church. How does he do that? That's rather significant. Well, the answer to that question brings us to the second key truth that Jesus revealed in Matthew 16. The first one is his church is built upon a solid rock. That is, the word of God is initially preached by Peter. The second key truth about the nature of the church, note this, is his church is under his sovereign headship. Christ's church is under his sovereign headship. Notice, verse 18 goes on to say, I also say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. I want you to take note of how the Lord worded this statement about the church while stating that it would be built upon the solid foundation of Peter as he proclaimed the truth. Notice that Jesus didn't say that Peter or any of the apostles would be the ones to build it. He didn't say that. Instead, he said emphatically that he would build it. He would build his church. This is a very important truth for each of us to grasp. The truth is this, the church exclusively belongs to Christ, nobody else. It's not your church, it's not my church. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul said to the elders from the church of Ephesus, he said, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, all the people entrusted to you, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You've got a church to look after. You're their overseers. He said, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The church has been purchased by Christ. Belongs to him. Doesn't belong to you. Doesn't belong to me. In 1 Peter 5, 2, Peter called the church the flock of God. Belongs to him. Paul basically said the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10, 32. He referred to the church as the church of God because the church belongs to him and no one else. Therefore, folks, how do we apply this? Why is this important? It is not appropriate for a pastor or anyone else to refer to the church he serves as his church in the sense that it belongs to him. 
And he is not responsible for building it up by bringing people to Christ. It belongs to Jesus himself, and it is Jesus and his responsibility to build it up by converting individuals. Just recently, when I was in California at, the, at a pastor's conference, one of our missionaries was there from Israel, my dear friend Menno Kalisher, and we were having lunch together. And Menno is sort of a legend when he's around um, God's people. He's well known from his father, who has written for many years. He is the Zvi of uh, Israel, my glory. And um, so Menno and I were sitting with some others and having lunch, and a man came up to him and said, so how is your church going? Now, if somebody said that to me, honestly, I, I wouldn't correct them, even though I would think it's not my church. But Menno is Israeli. They don't let anything get by. They're blunt. And Menno said, and I'll not give you his uh, Hebrew-English accent because I will sound silly doing that. But Menno said, first of all, it's not my church. I mean, then we can talk. It's not my church. He couldn't let that go. He's absolutely right. It's not, it's not his church. It's also incorrect to equate the church as belonging to a congregation so that it is called the people's church. The people's church, as some churches actually are called. A church neither belongs to a pastor, a leadership team of elders, or the people in the pews. The church belongs exclusively to Jesus Christ. It's his church, not the people's church. But not only does the church belong exclusively to Christ, having been purchased by his precious blood, but as I've already mentioned, he said he alone was responsible to build it. He said, I will build my church. In other words, it may be Peter and the truth of the gospel that Christ builds the church upon, but folks, he's the one building it. Now, what we want to consider this morning and the time remaining is this very critical issue of how Christ builds his church. Meaning, how does he bring people to himself for salvation? How does he convert people? We know that conversions come about. You're here. I'm here. Others have been saved for 2,000 years. How does he do it? Well, it's not by our persuasiveness. It's not by us putting pressure on people in witnessing situations. It's because Jesus is at work adding to his church. Acts 2, 47 says, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Did you get that? The Lord was adding to their number. Not Peter, not the apostles. The Lord was adding to their number. So how does he do it? Since he is the sovereign Lord and head of the church, how does he go about building it? I'd say that's an essential question. And I would dare say that a lot of people have never thought this through. So this morning, I want to help us to think this through. But before we can even attempt to answer this question, we need first to be clear in our thinking of what the church is. I know I've said a lot about it, but let me try to crystallize your thinking. When the Bible speaks of the church, it is not referring to a physical building or a religious organization. It is always referring to people. Now, you just have to put out of your mind what is the common thought. If somebody says, I'm going to the church tomorrow, I have to pick up something, what they mean is I'm going to this building. But biblically speaking, this is not the church. You are the church. When you leave, the church leaves. When I'm here and I walk through during the week the auditorium, the church isn't here. You are the church. It's not a building. We commonly say that. That, by the way, was originally 
the reason why Lakeside is called a chapel. You are the church. The building is not the church. The church comes to the chapel. And actually, that is, that is somewhat biblical. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul actually, as he opens this book, refers to the church as the saints, the people of God. But there is an interesting statement, which maybe will illustrate what I'm talking about, in chapter 16, verse 19, as he is finishing his letter, he says, the churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Prissa, meaning Priscilla, greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Now notice, the church is not the house. They had a private home, and the church gathered there. They didn't have buildings back then that housed the church. The church met in their home. That's exactly what we're talking about, because the church refers to people who gather to meet in a building, whatever that building might be. Now, in light of the fact that when the New Testament uses the term church, It is referring to save people, people who have been called out, because that's what the word church means. Remember, ecclesia, we saw that last week. People who have been called out from their generation of of mass humanity, who have been called out to come to faith in Christ. The question is, how does Jesus go about calling and bringing the church to himself? Well, it may surprise you. It may surprise some of you to know that no one, if left to their own, their own desires, is really interested in coming to Christ for salvation. Nobody. Nobody. That's because every one of us, being born into this world, are born with a spiritual condition that Paul refers to as death. Dead. Meaning that we had no spiritual life in us. We were born, we had physical life but no spiritual life within us, and therefore we were totally unresponsive and incapable of responding to God. We were just like a dead corpse is incapable of responding to anything of a physical nature. Yes, we were born into this world alive physically. We responded to physical things, but not spiritual. And I want you to see this. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We have gone over this many times, but I am praying that we will have ears to hear because I still think that some people don't get it. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I'd say that's pretty clear. You were dead. You were dead. He goes on to say, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest. John Newton wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, and now I'm found, was blind but now I see. I was blind. I was spiritually dead and completely without the ability to help myself. I was condemned in my sin, but God in his amazing grace brought me to spiritual life. He opened my eyes so that I could see the truth about my need and his provision. Even though I didn't care for him or even think he existed, 
He demonstrated his love toward me, and that while I was a sinner and his enemy, Christ died for me. Thanks for tuning in today to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. If you're in or near Clearwater some Sunday, why not stop in and worship with Pastor Steve and the whole Lakeside family? The address is 1893 Sunset Point Road, and the phone number is 727-441-1714. That's 727-441-1714. Find out more at lakesidechapel.com. Verse by Verse is a listener-supported ministry of Lakeside. We have giving information and a large collection of previous broadcasts on our website, versebyverseradio.org. Click on the Message Archive tab. And for our visually impaired listeners, let me remind you about a special offer. If you have a digital talking book player from the Library Service for the Blind and you'd like to have a free audio Bible for your digital player, call 800-838-5924 or visit www.blindbibles.com. That number again is 800-838-5924. I'm your announcer, Jerry Peterson. Some people complain.